married now, like Hunter said, starting seminary in the fall and am working in ministry full time. And I, if I have learned anything, it is that there is a lot of complicated, hard to understand things in scripture that only sometimes seem to become more complicated and hard to understand the farther you go in life. And so we have two passages we're going to look at this morning, one from Ecclesiastes and one from John. And the John passage is going to sound very familiar, triumphal entry. This is Palm Sunday, so this is what we are here remembering this morning. And at first glance, they may seem entirely disconnected. We have the, the wonderful praise and worship of Jesus as he comes into the city of Jerusalem, contrasted with, with what looks like a very short passage from Ecclesiastes telling us to fear God. In one passage, we'll be told to fear not, in the next, to fear God. And these two things sound contradictory. But this common thread of fear is what I'm going to be focusing on this morning, because I think that we have a hard time understanding the place of fear, especially when it comes to our faith. So let's look at Ecclesiastes. If you're not familiar with this book, it was written, most likely, by King Solomon, um, describing the worthlessness of a life pursuing things other than God, and the goodness of a life centered around God and his commands to his people. He refers to himself as the teacher or preacher, so that's how I'll refer to him. And throughout this book, there's a large discussion of vanity. All is vanity. In chapter 1, we see that wisdom is vanity, madness is vanity. In chapter 2, we see that pleasure is vanity, wealth is vanity. Then he reflects a little bit more on it and sees, okay, wisdom might be better than madness, but you still end up at death. So ultimately, both fade into vanity. Hard work is vanity. Struggle is vanity. And then, in Ecclesiastes 2, we see the hint of this, this other contrasting theme. Not only are the things that we experience in this life frequently the subject of vanity, we see in chapter 2, verses 24 to 26, the teacher says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also I saw is from the hand of God, for apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, but to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to one who pleases God. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. And again, in chapter 3, we see this command to be joyful and do good, to eat, drink, and take pleasure in the work God has given us to do. This is God's gift to mankind, and this is something that we're going to be focusing on on our service trip. This issue of what does it mean to work in the Lord? What does it mean to do work that is not simply toil and vain vanity, but instead something that has eternal significance? And we continue in chapter 4. Even justice and righteousness as pursuits for the sake of attaining just those two things in and of themselves are ultimately just vain and corrupted. And so rejoice in your work because that's all you'll, all you'll have. From dust we were made and to dust we will return. Vanity goes on and on and on and we see just the, the overwhelming sadness that the teacher seems to feel as he talks about these things, having chased after them at different points in his life himself. And yet at the same time, there's this recurring refrain to be joyful and to take delight in the work God has given us to do. And so our passage this morning 
is going to give us a glimpse of what it looks like to actually live in a way that is joyful and meaningful, in a way that is significant, and that I think has a lot uh, to do with, with what, it, what it means to fear God and how that fear actually speaks into what our lives are supposed to look like today. So we're going to look more specifically at Ecclesiastes 5 this morning, verses 1 through 7. And my first point that I'm going to be focusing in is, is how exactly do we follow God? And I think Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7 has some good things for it to say on this matter. After that, I'm going to look at why we don't follow God. What are the reasons, what are the things that tend to drive us away from him instead? And finally, I want to look at what we are supposed to do while we wait for Christ to return. So let me read this passage for us this morning. Ecclesiastes 5. Guard your steps. When you go to the house of God, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity, but God is the one you must fear. So how do we follow God? Well, I think we see in this passage roughly four different commands. The first in verse 1 is to come carefully, that we must guard our steps when we approach the house of God. And if you think about it, coming before the Lord is, is actually a very exposing, difficult thing for us to do. It might be easy or feel easy to show up to church on Sunday, but if you're just in that easy, comfortable place when you come before God, chances are you might be coming before him foolishly. I assume many of you are like me and have, have an idea of that like perfect quiet time of like what your time with the Lord is supposed to look like. You know, the Instagram-worthy sunrise in the background out your window while you have your cup of coffee open to your favorite Bible passage. And there's all these times that, that we, we chase after this like ideal good time with the Lord. But then we also have all those other moments where we come to the same genealogy in the Old Testament for the third time, or we read through it for the third time and are just trying to rack our brains for something significant to take out of a list of people. Or maybe you hit that same place in your yearly Bible reading plan where you always just start losing track of days. I mean, it's hard for us to be aware that coming before God is a meaningful, significant moment in just about every time that we do it. And yet when it gets inconvenient, when it feels hard or uncomfortable, or we're at a point where we don't feel it as much as we want to, it becomes easy to just kind of let it drift off into us going through the motions. But coming before God is a relationship. And if I have learned anything in the few months that I have been married, it is that marriage reveals a lot about you, and it points out a lot of differences 
than you experience when you're dating. When you're dating, it's somewhat easy, unless you're less oblivious than I am, to, to remember that the time you have with the other person is pretty significant and special. Like, you don't see each other that often. When you do see each other, it's great, and you look forward to it, and as you lead up into marriage, it gets even more exciting. But my wife and I joke now about how we'll be sitting with each other on the couch watching TV or something, and then suddenly one of us will remember the other person is there, and it's like Allie will like come over and hug me on the couch, and I'll be like, what just happened? And it's like, but there's this moment of remembering the other person um, where you, you stop being able to take that person for granted in that moment. And it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing to not be constantly aware of the other person. But I think there's, there's a sweetness and goodness to that moment that I think has something to say about what our relationship with the Lord is supposed to look like. Because I can only imagine how, if you've been married even longer, it can get even easier to become just kind of unaware that the other person is there, to take them for granted. And though we won't be able to be perfectly aware of each other all the time, I mean, that would exhaust me, the Lord is constantly aware of us. He's constantly present and he's constantly pressing in on our lives. Yet how often do we even acknowledge him in our day-to-day life? Much less reach out to him in love and affection. I mean, when you're with someone, you don't have the luxury of being able to pick the perfect moment to then suddenly engage with them. And I think that we tend to find that there's actually a beauty that comes from being in the mess and the ordinariness of life with each other. And God wants to be in that with us. And so we come before him even now on Sundays, and I'd be willing to bet, even just in the past 10 minutes, most of us have thought about something completely unrelated to the Lord. I know I have. I mean, I was nervous to get up here and was thinking about all of you and what you're going to think of me and all these great, wonderful, helpful thoughts right before I could preach. I mean, it's so vain, though. Here I am in God's house with his people, and I was thinking about this in our prayer right before the service. I was like, there are certain things that no matter where you go in the world, when you are with other Christians, that you have in common and that you can hold on to and point to. Prayer is one of those things. Worship is another. But with different styles of worship, you know, not everyone does it the same way. But prayer, man, that is something that we all have in common. And there is something powerful in being able to gather together like this in the Lord's sight. Fools act in vain, ignorant of their evil, as the teacher talks about in our passage, because their sacrifices are all about them. And they act utterly ignorant of God's presence, but we are to come carefully, ever aware of the one who is ever aware of us. But not only are we to come carefully, in verse 2, we see that we are, to be, we are to come ready to listen. It seems kind of obvious in some ways, right? Don't be quick to speak before God. He kind of knows more than we do. And I think verse 2 of our passage calls to mind James 3 and the importance of taming the tongue. James 3.6 says, The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. And I think that with that, we should bear, bear in mind the fact that even our prayers and desires that we present before God are tainted by sin and unrighteousness. 
Now, by all means, be honest before God with your prayers. That's our next command, actually. But don't pray as though you know what is ultimately good for you. Verse 3 is kind of an odd one, this talking about dreams, being full of busyness. But I, I think the gist of what the teacher is talking about here is that if you come to God with some golden, dreamy outcome of what your life is supposed to look like in mind, then you, you bring with that the baggage of some action plan God has to take to make that happen for you. And there are all these clear steps that God just needs to follow to achieve this, this outcome that we want. And so in, in the prayer to God that he would bring this thing to come to pass, we end up not really asking God to work his will or to, to bring us into his plan, but instead to fit himself into our plan. And what the teacher is pointing out to us here is that in all the franticness of trying to get people on board with, with of trying to get God on board with our plans, we lose out on the opportunity to listen to him. So we are to come carefully, we are to come ready to listen, and we are to come in truth. We are to commit to the Lord fully with what we do and with what we say we will do. Our word is to be meaningful. Now, vows are not something we generally take to mean that much anymore, especially, I think, in my generation. The number of times I've heard someone say, oh, I swear if this thing happens or this person does this again, I'm just going to lose it, or I'm going to go do X, or I'm going to go do whatever. And even just the act of, of swearing or promising something to someone else ha has lost a lot of its meaning. Our word tends to not mean as much as it used to, and it tend, in fact, it tends to mean very little at all. And that shows through in even just how cynical we tend to act and think about each other. Because we expect, a lot of times we expect others to not follow through on their word. And there are countless reasons for that. We could go into the problems with how social media affects our communication, how fear of missing out leads us to go back on our word, or any number of other things. But I think there is one universal reason for why people don't follow through on what they promise. And that is because we don't have the power to make our promises happen. Because whether, whether it's our sinful nature leading us to go back on our word or, or something happens to make us not able to do something we said we would, we ultimately don't bear the power to actually fulfill every promise that we make. And I think that this is the truth that this little proverb in verse 5 is getting at. If we can hardly fulfill the promises that we make to each other, how much harder is it going to be to actually fulfill the promises we make to God? And those who tend to vow things to the Lord that they have no intention of following through on ultimately just end up in a spot of sin and vanity. I mean, it makes me think of Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verses 33 to 37. He said, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely but shall for perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And it doesn't come from evil because we intend 
it to not come to pass or we intend to go back on our word or we intend to hurt someone else by not following through on what we say. It comes from evil because there's this inherent pride that says, no, 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 no. Whatever happens in life, I can handle it. I can make things work out. But we don't have the capacity to follow through and I think this, this bears a particular weight in regards to our own salvation. And yet even there we tend to bargain with God, right? Like how often have you heard or done, <laughs> I know I have, this thing where you promise to follow the Lord if he'll just do X for me? Like, God, if you will just get me through these final exams. Like, I promise I will stop doing this thing that I know I wasn't supposed to be doing. Lord, I promise that if you will just, if you will just help me through this hard spot in my marriage, like, I'll be, I'll be all in for you. I'll be sold out for you. I mean, we get in this, this place of thinking that we're, we're on equal footing with God. And the struggle, I think, is part of why the preacher ends this section of Ecclesiastes with his final command. That we should come in fear. Now, I, I don't think this is simply about coming back to the, the sin spewing forth from your tongue command again. It's related. But the attitude here is a little different. And the key to these last two verses comes in verse 7 because we are to be aware not just of our place in the world, but, but of God's power and authority to judge all the many words and actions we, we say and do that we use to try to justify ourselves before him. And I think this is the fundamental reason why we do not come to the Lord as the preacher describes we should in these verses because we do not truly fear God. But now we're going to shift gears a little bit. Now I want to turn to our passage in John 12, verses 12 through 19, because I think we're going to see something here that has a lot to, to, that will shed some light on what it looks like to actually fear God as he intends us to. So John 12, verses 12 through 19. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So here, triumphal entry, we see Jesus living out the words of the prophet Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9 is where this little quote comes from that he uses. And in that command, you see that the Israelites are told to fear not, for their king has come. 
And yet in Ecclesiastes, we see the command that we are to fear God. So there is something to fear. Fear not, but fear God. And, and, but if Jesus is the Son of Man and Son of God, fully human and fully God, coming into Jerusalem on a donkey, I think there's a question worth asking. Do we really have anything to fear from a man who comes in as a king on a donkey? Well, even if you aren't asking the question, I guarantee many of the chief priests, those who eventually plotted to put Jesus to death on a cross, had that thought. I mean, they have been scheming and planning throughout the book of John and are ready to pounce on Jesus as he comes into Jerusalem with this big crowd of people praising him and calling out to God in praise for their salvation, being delivered in the person of Christ. And in verse 19, we see the Pharisees are realizing that it is time for drastic measures to be taken. Because you see, the Pharisees' fear surrounding Jesus was, was and has been throughout this whole narrative that Jesus was going to take their power from them. And now they're beginning to worry that the Roman authorities are going to view Jesus' entry to shouts of Hosanna, literally meaning, please save us, these shouts calling for their king to rescue them as a declaration of uprising and rebellion against the Roman Empire. And this would mean not only death and pain for the Jewish people, but would mean that these religious leaders would lose their power because they're the ones who are supposed to keep things under control. So in a way, the chief priests were following the preacher's command to us in Ecclesiastes. They did fear God. They feared Jesus. But they didn't know they were afraid of God because they definitely didn't think Jesus was God. And two, they weren't afraid of Jesus because of who he is, but because of what they thought they would lose. And too often, I think this is how we tend to think of fear of God. That it's the secondary thing, just like these religious leaders. And I think this stems from a misunderstanding about what it means to truly fear God. Because really to fear God is to revere him. It's to stand in awe of him. And the goal that the, our passage from Ecclesiastes seem to be, seems to be directing us towards is this, that we would worship God in his house with reverence. And that our worship would look a whole lot like that of the crowd that lined the streets as Jesus came into Jerusalem. This wholehearted, beautiful cry of Hosanna to a Messiah who has come to save us. And yet, just like this crowd, we know that in a few days, Jesus is going to be alone on the cross. And just like them, you and I tend to find other things far more compelling. I mean, the reasons that we, fear, we do not fear God are manifold, whether it's we don't think Fearing him is really good, or we think other things are more important, or maybe fearing God just doesn't seem that important to us. I think fear of the Lord, typically, I think typically the way we think of it best is as some sort of necessary evil. That maybe it's, it's something that leads us to repent and ask for the Holy Spirit to enter into our hearts, but then it can be easy to forget about fear of the Lord, right? Then it's just all about love. We know worry and fear. 
And we know that if you live in those things all the time, it can literally shorten your life. Our bodies are not meant to live in anxiety and fear. And yet, we continue to struggle with this. And then we have the simultaneous command to fear God. So if these things are true, what, how do we make sense of this? Well, what are the things we fear? Maybe you have a phobia. And you know that kind of fear that just kicks in and overwhelms everything, like when you see a spider or a snake or something like that. I, I had a really bad fear of needles for a very long time. And I had a roommate in college who was diabetic. And so I was constantly afraid that I was going to walk into the room at some point and see him giving himself a shot of insulin and just pass out on the floor. Eventually, I, I found a way to get over it. I decided I was going to go donate blood. And you can imagine how well that went for me. But I did it. It's over. And, and I bring it up. It's, it's funny, but I've known people who experience a fear of God as this. As this overriding, logic-eroding terror that makes them completely unable to think of anything else. But fear of the Lord is not about pure terror or some deep-set lack of ability to see anything else in that moment of intense fear. That's not, that's not what we're being commanded towards. I think most of us, if we don't have phobias that come to mind, at least have a sort of fear that's less intense but more constant. Our anxieties and our worries. Do we have enough to pay rent, to pay insurance, to pay for school, to pay for meals, to pay for college, to pay for all the unexpected things? Does my family love me? Do my friends care about me? Am I worth loving? Whatever it may be, there, there's a common thread within our fear that says that we have to do or say something to make us feel like we are enough, like we're okay. But the truth is that what we're promised in the Lord is not that we will get what we want. We may experience loss and the pain and hurt from experiencing the things we most fear, we most worry about. But what we are promised is that in the grand scheme of things, they're always going to turn out best for those who fear the Lord. And this is why God is worth fearing. Not just because he's powerful enough to judge us, but because he alone is powerful enough to be in control. And not only is he powerful and just and in control, but he is also loving and merciful and beautiful. So we've seen that the key to the good life to follow, is to follow the Lord. It starts with a fear of God. And that fear is not something secondary, but instead should look like the worship of those who followed Jesus as he entered the city of Jerusalem. A wholehearted shout of praise and adoration. But we know how Jesus' story ends. He doesn't assume kingship. He dies and is resurrected and reigns in heaven but he's not here with us bodily and sin is still present in this world right now. So what do we do while we wait for the king to return? Well, the recurring theme in Ecclesiastes about the goodness of a life lived according to what God has directed us to do in life still bears weight. 
He offers utter joy and satisfaction to those who follow him, and he alone is capable of following through on that promise for us. But the reverse of that is just as true. You see, he also guarantees dissatisfaction and vain toil for those who do not follow him. And he is just as capable of following through on that promise. This is part of why the psalmist can pray so boldly and confidently that God will visit sorrow upon their enemies, because judgment will come. Yes, fear of the Lord is what leads us first to repentance, to turning from what we know earns God's wrath against us, our sin. But we must turn towards something else, or we just, we just inevitably end up spinning back towards what we turned away from, or else wandering off in some other aimless direction. And so if fear of God is just about repenting, to relieve some sense of guilt and then going back to what we were doing before, you're just going to end up spiraling in anxiety and worry and terror. But true fear of the Lord comes when we see that out of his love for you, he chose you. Yes, fear the Lord and repent, but fear the Lord in love and rejoice too. John Bunyan, a great Puritan guy, describes the proper attitude of one who fears the Lord in a treatise he wrote called On the Fear of God, and he describes it as rejoicing with trembling. And I think that this is the key to what our posture should be towards God as we wait for his son to return. Rejoicing with trembling. We rejoice because, as the preacher says in Ecclesiastes, It is in a life lived fearing God that we find the satisfaction that we most deeply desire. And we tremble because we know that our salvation hinges on the will of of someone other than ourselves. That it is through God's work in saving us that we come to him. That there's nothing we can accomplish on our own and of our own strength to be able to bridge the gap between him and us that was caused by our sin. And so we rejoice because in Christ we have not just some satisfaction that makes us pleasant, peaceful people who never suffer. No, we have a satisfaction that can endure every hardship this sin-corrupted world and our own sin-corrupted hearts can throw at us. And we have a hope that can help us engage with the hard things in life with wisdom, knowing that they do not have the final say. And why is this true? Because we have a Savior who died so that God's wrath and judgment might be satisfied, giving us the capacity to live lives not toiling in the foolishness of some secular view of the good life or some religious mindset that seeks to earn salvation, but instead living lives under the one whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. And we have a Savior who did not just die but rose again so that God's love and mercy might be revealed fully giving us the opportunity to come home to our Father in heaven and join Christ in that triumphant procession through the streets of the new Jerusalem in the new earth when Christ returns. The preacher saw glimmers of this in those who love the Lord with all their being around him. And you and I get to see the truth of this all around us in the lives of people who have had their hearts changed by the only God worth fearing at all. 
we have access to a satisfaction that stems from awe and wonder, fear, of a God who would turn his own wrath and judgment upon himself, upon his own son, so that his image bearers might be able to see the truth of their sin's ugliness displayed on the cross and God's beauty displayed in Christ's resurrection. And so we are to come carefully, to come ready to listen, to come in truth, and to come in fear of the Lord when we do come to him. And it's not easy to do. In fact, most of us are going to fail at every step in this process at some point. And part of this stems from the fact that we struggle to know and understand what it really means to fear God. And so we do just as poorly at coming to him as the Pharisees do. We fear other things more than him or else equate a fear of God to terror or anxiety rather than awe and reverence. But these approaches fall short of what Solomon means when he describes a fear of the Lord. This awe and reverence at one who's powerful and just enough to judge us truly, yet loving and merciful enough to grant us overflowing grace. And so we can rejoice with trembling as we cry out Hosanna to the one who came, died, and was risen so that we might receive that grace. And through this grace, we find satisfaction. We do not have to toil in vain, but can instead work in joy at the tasks God has given us, recognizing our lives for what they are, gifts of grace. So we are to live differently as we wait. We are to live for the glory of the only God who is worthy of our fear. Will you pray with me to that good God now?